No, we're good. James chapter 4. I want you to turn there. Oh, I am not cool enough to follow that song. <laughs> I'm also not cool enough to keep the beat, but we've established that fact before. James chapter 4 is, is, is where we're going to spend just a few moments. I, I want to warn you in advance. Um, I'll warn you a lot of things in advance. Um, I, I'm going to move pretty quickly through the passage um, and then I want to make sure that I park on explaining the passage because what, what I think I walked away from in my study of this text in particular is that we have a lot to praise the Lord for. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you have just a device, you can't find James on it, if you just want to scan one of those QR codes, that'll get you right to it. Um, James chapter 4, let me, let me just start by saying this. Last week we looked at different types of wisdom. What are the evidences that you are living in godly wisdom? What are the evidences that you are, are living in foolish wisdom? wisdom, fleshly wisdom, earthly wisdom, and, and what James said last week is you can tell when it's, it's, it's actually not wisdom, because it's a life that is surrounded by disorder, every evil practice. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle that is driven by our own selfishness, because remember we want to be the point because again, I'm, 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 I confessed it last week, I can confess it again this week. I want to be the point. Unfortunately, I proved that again so many times this week, it's ridiculous. And that's what James is talking about. It's like selfishness is this big deal. And so he starts James chapter 4, and, and, and he, he asks the question, and we know from Pastor James, when Pastor James asks the question, you don't answer it right away because there's usually a sting at the back end of it, right? So he says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? And it would be tempting to be like, I can tell you it's because that guy's a moron. And James continues, isn't it? The fact that they come from your passions that wage inside of you. See, you desire and you don't have. You murder, so you covet. You can't obtain. You fight. You wage war. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. He says, here, let me, let me tell you the fundamental problem that I'm seeing, believer, and understand that. That's who Pastor James is talking to. These are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. These are those who have been in the church for some period of time. These are those who have now escaped Jerusalem because of persecution, but, but they're still believers. He says, let me tell you what the problem is, believers. You're selfish. Um, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I I'm selfish. We want what we want when we want it. And our, our selfish desires come up inside of us, and then rage follows when those desires go unmet, is what James is saying. And, and heaven help those people who stand in your way, who have another opinion, or worse, who are as selfish as you are, because when selfishness is multiplied, chaos breaks out. James says, man, listen, I understand. This is the problem. This is your problem. This is what you need to address. This is what you need to deal with. You want, but you don't have, so you murder. You want, and you can't get it, so you fight, and you quarrel. Anybody ever seen that happen in real life? Does anybody have children? Mine! Mine! Right? And you can wonder, like, where do they get that? That's just crazy, immature behavior. And then there's a Black Friday sale. And there's their mom and dad like, it's mine, right? So, so we got to be careful not to cast the first stone because it's in us. 
man, our, our selfishness is inside of us so deep. It's, in fact, you see it in how we treat God. He, he talks about this. You, you, you don't even waste your time asking God because you think you've got it all on your own. And the only reason you ever would ask God is you're trying to get more stuff. So what that is, in essence, is you're just going back to that lamp and rubbing it, hoping the genie pops out again and gives you three more wishes. But that, that's not about him. It's about getting what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And man, if he doesn't give it to you, well, then I'm just going to find it someplace else. You know where you see that a lot? Church. Good church folk, all in. They, they follow the most important rules of church. They don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. They're very careful with all of those things. They, they, they show up carrying the right Bible translation. They show up, they, they drop an offering in the box. They, 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 they're always in church. They, they don't fight over the front parking lines. They, they go to the second row and fight over those ones, but not the front ones. Good church folk. Then, then, God, then God, God doesn't give them everything they want. Doesn't give them what they really want. Doesn't give them what they think they deserve. And so they bail on God. They bail on church. What that shows is they didn't want Jesus. They just wanted his stuff. And so when the genie stops handing out the goods, we run to something else to give us what we want. Sounds a lot like verse 4, chapter 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. When we treat God like that, he doesn't give us what we want, so we run someplace else to get it. When he doesn't give us what we think we deserve, we run to somebody else who's going to give it to us. What he says is you are like a cheating lover. You are like an adulterer. And when you've run to the things that are actually the very enemies of God, you have now made yourself an enemy of God. So let me ask you this question. No, don't answer this one out loud because I don't want to embarrass anybody. I just want you to, to mull this one over by yourself just for a moment. How do you treat somebody who has used you, who has hurt you, who has betrayed you? Maybe better, how do you want to treat them, right? Because we're good church folk, I said. How do you want to treat the people who are your enemy? It's amazing. James tells us how God's going to treat those who have betrayed him. James tells us how God is going to treat his enemies. Verse 5. Do you think it's without reason that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives greater grace. How does God respond to the adulterer? <laughs> How does God respond to the very enemy uh, 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 that, that, that postures himself in rebellion against him? He, there's two things that James mentions here, and it's shocking. The first one is this. It says, so God looks at that person, and he is filled with jealousy. Now, that's a weird word to use in our culture, isn't it? Don't, don't cheapen it. This isn't birthed out of an insecurity or a fear that God carries with him. Oh, I wish I had what they had. That's, that's not this type of jealousy because, first of all, everything you have, God already owns. 
So he isn't looking at you with envy like, wow, I wish I had that. No, 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 no. He's looking at you saying, man, I wish they loved me. I'm trying to be as sensitive as I can because I know many of you have experienced this. If your wife cheats on you, and as a husband you don't feel any jealousy at all, then as a husband, you are not actually committed to that relationship. How amazing is it? That instead of walking away, instead of giving up, instead of giving in, God is jealous for you. So much so that he moves towards you. What do you, what do you mean he moves towards you? How, how, how does he move towards me? He's, he's going to come to you with the offer of a gift, and he talks about at the beginning of verse 6, he says, there is, what, greater grace. Greater grace. Some translations say he gives more grace. That word greater or more means large or big. Oftentimes it can mean surprising. So regardless of how, how high the sin volume is in your life, grace is greater. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's not even like it's close. I mean, this, this makes it look close, right? It's not close. It's, it's, if you were in a race between grace and sin, it wasn't like, we've got to go to the photos to see who actually finished first. No, no. Grace has already uh, gotten showered, gotten dressed, gotten a meal, and is on the way home before sin even crosses the finish line. It's not even close. Grace is that much greater. That's the good news of the gospel, and it's astonishing, and it's scandalous. It's unthinkable humanly, and it's for you. Every single one of you. Jesus is a master storyteller, and he captures this idea in one of the most popular and famous stories in all of Scripture. Luke chapter 15, it actually begins with this. My, my remote isn't working, so Mike, if you could just throw this verse up there. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says this. The tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining about him. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's the context of what story that Jesus is about to tell. Okay, so you've got the tax collectors and sinners over here. They were very much looked down upon. This was a group of people who, who they knew they were rebellious people. They knew they had no business being in the presence of a holy one. But here they were, nonetheless, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then over here, you get the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders like, can you believe Jesus is hanging out with them? I can't believe it. I mean, does he not know that they're sinners? And Jesus, hearing this, unpacks three quick stories. I don't have time for the first two, but that last one's a, that last one's a winner. <laughs> he says, let me tell you a story about a man has two sons. We don't know any context about this family. We don't know how big the family property was. We don't know how long or how old these two boys were. We don't know uh, how hard they actually worked, how many hours they put in a day. We just know that this man had two sons. And the youngest son approached his dad one day and said, Dad, I want my cut. I want, I want my inheritance now. Dad, give to me what is mine, he says. <laughs> See, the youngest son is saying, I want what I want when I want it. And I want it right now. Dad, I don't want you 
I want your stuff. Let's pretend like you've actually died, Dad. And just give me what's going to be mine anyway. Now, understand, sitting in the crowd, these people would have heard the beginning of this story. This, this younger son talking to his father like that, that never happens. No one's going to walk up to their daddy and be like, hey, you're looking a little pale. So before you go, why don't you just give me everything that's going to be mine anyway? Because if anybody walked up to their daddy and said that, you would wake up next week with your older brother still laughing. How dare you talk to your dad like that? Nobody talked to their daddy like that. But here's this young son saying, Dad, dad give me everything that is mine. And so as the people are messing with and, and rolling around with and, and, and trying to wrestle with what, what, what's going on there because the story is so over the top, they couldn't possibly imagine what was going to happen next because, because the young son makes his request and then dad says, all right, I'll cash out for you. Now in this culture, it wouldn't have been as simple as just go to the bank account and give him his his, his chunk of change. He would have had to sell property. He would have had to liquidate his assets. Why would, why would dad do that? And the young boy, young man, gets all his money and he stuffs it in a bag and throws it over his shoulder and he heads off to the big city. The big city. That was his dream. Yeah, forget working in this dusty little farm with Podunkville with my dad. I mean, that's so, ugh. I want to be in the big city with the bright and shining lights. I want to I go where all the famous people go. I want to go where all the, the popular people go. I want to go and experience life. I mean, that's not life. I want to go and experience life. And so he takes his bag and he throws it over his shoulder filled with money and he goes into the city and he begins to buy anything he wants. He begins to buy anyone he wants. He eats the finest foods. He rents the finest cars. He stays in the penthouse apartments. He's, he's, he's picking up every tab that happens around him. I mean, he is just throwing money out of this bag, just throwing money. And, and then it was interesting. The more money he threw, more people showed up. He was the life of the party. He attracted the loudest, most, most obnoxious people in the big city. And he became well-known as being the man with the money. He was the high roller, and he was going to make sure everybody knew about it. Until one morning, he wakes up in his penthouse suite with people he barely knows sleeping all over the floor. Steps over all the bodies to get to his, the safe in the hotel room, and he... Boop, 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 and opens up the safe and pulls out his little bag and he pulls out a $1 bill and that's all that's left. He spent all of it. Within hours. Those strangers who were sleeping on his floor, the strangers who thought he was the coolest thing ever, the strangers who laughed at every joke he ever told, suddenly disappeared. He was left alone. He wrestled with trying to figure out what to do. He gets kicked out of the, the penthouse. He's got to return the rental car. He is walking on the streets. He is running through his shoes. His clothes are being tattered. It's going day after day after day with no shower, with no change of clothes, with no food. And to make matters worse, a famine comes in on the city. And he didn't prepare for a famine. He's got nothing. He has no prospects. He is desperate. He does the unthinkable. He hires himself out to feed the pigs 
of a farmer. No self-respecting Jew would ever do that. But he was so very desperate. We don't know how long he worked. We just know that at some point he recognized the fact that he was being paid so little and he was so incredibly hungry that as he was feeding the pigs with their slop, he found himself daydreaming about how he could eat that slop. It seems in the story that that's the moment that he comes to. That's the moment he hits the proverbial rock bottom. When he hits rock bottom, he finally realizes the foolishness of his choices, and he begins to think to himself, says, even, even my dad's lowest paid servants have food on the table. Even my dad's lowest paid servants sleep in a bed at night, have clothing to cover them. They, they, they survive and survive well at dad's place, and here I am, I'm starving, literally starving. I need to go back. The way he goes back is with a spirit of humility that is unlike anything else you see in Scripture. He practices what he's going to say to Dad when he gets back. All right, okay, uh, all right, okay. Okay, so I've sinned against God. And I've sinned against you, Dad. And because of my sinfulness, my selfishness, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, just hire me. Give me a job. Okay. Okay, and he begins his journey back. And we don't know how long it takes him to get home. Can you imagine that journey, though? Can you imagine the anxiety that brings up in your heart as you consider, I'm about to stand face to face with a man who just months, maybe months earlier, I said, you're better off dead to me. And now I need to come into his presence. Like, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just hire me. And, and, and as he walks, he continues to practice the, the apology, to practice and rehearse what he's going to say. I'm sure it crossed his mind. Man, i got to get cleaned up a little bit because I stink. My clothes are torn, but there's no place to stop it. Who's going to service me? Nobody will. Nobody will even let me come into their property, so I just have to keep going. So he continues going, and as he, he gets closer and closer to home, he can almost see the farm in the distance. He rehearses it one more time. Okay, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just give me a job. And as he opens his eyes, he sees a cloud of dust. He's like, that's a little, little weird what's happening. And here, here he sees someone running towards him as fast as they can run. And it's like, I'm not sure what this is all about. He's not exactly sure what to do. And it takes him a little while to recognize the fact that the one who's coming closer and closer has got his robe hiked up over his shoulder. He's kicked off his sandals. And he's running as fast as he can. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, it's my son! It's a little weird to watch your parent run at all. In this culture, it was considered undignified for an adult to run. And Daddy said, I don't care how much dignity you think I have or don't have. That's my son. And he runs into his presence, and the son falls on his face before him and begins to cry, and his father falls on top of him, and the boy tries. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, listen, listen. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's all he gets out. Because Daddy begins to yell over him, not at him over him and he's hollering back to the farm bring me the sandals because only servants were barefoot bring me my finest robe giving his son more dignity than the tattered clothing he was wearing get my ring showing that he has the authority as the son of the father kill the fatted calf it's time to party
you are in the big city still. Some of you are on rock bottom. Some of you are just longing for the big city. Hey, stop. Do you see how he feels about you? Do you see the grace that he wants to extend to you? But there's a second son. The older brother's out in the field working, kind of misses this whole thing happening. Playing everything by the book, doing everything right. He's making up all the shifts that his younger brother had skipped out on by leaving town. So the work is double. And, uh, and he's just slaving away. Slaving away. And he, he comes home, and as he comes home, the text tells us he hears music and he hears dancing. That's a good party. When you can hear dancing, he asks another servant, he says, what's going on? He says, oh, didn't you hear? Your little brother's home. Yeah, your, dad, your dad's throwing a party. That fatted calf. Oh, we slaughtered it. It is cooking right now in the barbecue. And the older brother sits in the corner of the steps arms crossed and is just angry. Word gets back to dad as the party is going on that the older brother refuses to come in so he comes out and he begs his other son come, come join us at the party. Join us, join us at the party. And the older son, the older brother says dad listen man I, I've been slaving for so many years I've never skipped a shift. I've worked when I'm sick. I've, I've never disobeyed you. And you didn't give me as much as a goat. This little punk takes all of your belongings, spends all of your money on prostitutes, comes back, and you give him the fatted calf. See, what, what you get to see in that moment is the heart of the older brother. His relationship with his daddy was based on what he was doing. So I deserve a party because I've worked hard. I've kept myself clean. I've towed the party line. I deserve a party. I've always been obedient. I've always worked so very hard. I've earned a party. But what daddy says is, listen, 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 my son, my son. You've always been this way. It's not about what you've done. It's about our relationship not your performance. Everything I have is yours. So you can't earn the love of God. You need to accept the love of God. I love this one thing that's said. This, this is kind of an aside. I don't have a lot of time for that, but I just want to, yeah, um, when, when the, the daddy is answering the older brother, he says, listen, listen, listen. We had to celebrate. Your brother who was dead is alive again. Your brother, the one who was lost, is now found. We had to celebrate. Man, we have to celebrate. That's the goodness of grace. That's the generosity of the grace. That is more grace. That's what grace is all about. We have to celebrate. See, when the younger brother showed himself unfaithful to the father in his wild out days in the big city, his older brother actually showed that he didn't understand the love the father had for him while he stayed at home. He totally misses 
But the heart of the Father is to rescue and celebrate. The older brother does not understand grace and has no room for forgiveness. The older brother stayed at home. And while he weeded, he rubbed that genie lamp, hoping something good would pop out. It's the same thing the younger brother did, just a little more culturally acceptable. He gives more grace, more than what? More than we deserve, more than we could ever need, more than we could ever use up, more than we could ever explain, more than we could ever understand, more than we could ever want. It's just more. This morning, the call of James on your life is to take your sin seriously. And you do this as you approach him in humility. Let me, this, I'm really basically just going to read the end of the, the passage this morning. He gives greater grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What he's saying is take your sin seriously. Stop thinking it doesn't mean anything. It means a great deal. You are breaking the heart of the Father. Stop kidding yourself. This is a big deal. Approach him with humility. Approach him with a repentant spirit. Draw near to God, and he's going to come near to you because he's jealous for your affection. He's got a greater grace for you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Return home. Whether you're in the big city or pouting on the back porch. Come home and enjoy the favor of God. Let's pray. And God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths we find in it. As we close our time together, I pray that you would get much honor. In the matchless name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, so this morning, we're not quite done yet. We're going to take communion together. What we're going to do is, is take some time to celebrate what God has done for us um, in Jesus Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. Um, if you're a guest with us, I say this almost every time, but I want to say it again. There is nothing magical about communion. These crackers and this juice, it's just crackers and it's just juice. But it's a wonderful picture and a wonderful reminder of what it is that Jesus Christ did for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a picture of how much your sin costs. It costs the full cost of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's also a wonderful reminder of the jealousy of God and the grace of God. So in a moment, I'm going to dismiss you. Um, you're going to leave to your right. Come on up to the table. Receive your elements. They come in uh, a pack of two uh, cups packed on top of each other. Return to your seats, and then when everybody has the elements, uh, we will uh, take communion together. Just a reminder, there's, for those of you who have serious gluten intolerances, there is... Uh, gluten-free available in, in the back. Just a word before I do that, though. Um, if, if you're with us this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, holy smokes, I can't wait till you can take this meal with us. But for now, I'm going to ask that you stay in your seat. This is for those who have been claimed by Jesus Christ. And the way they were claimed was this. They admitted with their mouth what their life demonstrates every day, that they're lost and in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the only Savior.
And if you haven't done that, then just, just but we look forward to the day we can celebrate this with you. If you're here this morning and you just need some time to pray, maybe you find yourself in the big city or sitting on the back porch, then just take the time to pray. We want to encourage you to do just that. So please, receive your seats. Sorry, leave your seats and receive the elements. drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I won't drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you 
in my Father's kingdom. This is a picture of the body that was broken, of Jesus, our Savior. Who in his perfection substituted himself for us on the cross. This is a picture of the blood of Jesus shed for my sins, for your sins. As we take the elements this morning, we rehearse for a banquet that's still to come. You see, what the religious elite meant as slander against Jesus is actually our greatest hope. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Father, thank you for the precious body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your jealousy for us, for the grace that you have extended to every single one of us. It's in the matchless name of our precious Savior, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Take, eat, and drink.